Welcome to the Medicare Meetup. I'm Meg Kepke, and I'm joined today by my colleagues and co-hosts, Melissa Cohen and Breda Eshelman. This podcast is brought to you by Arrera Health Group, a mission-focused policy, strategy, and operations practice committed to making healthcare more affordable, more accessible, and high quality for all. We meet monthly to recap the Medicare news of the day and look ahead. Tune in each month for fresh content and watch for our mini-series devoted to special topics throughout the year. On today's episode, we offer reactions to CMMI's recent announcement of their refreshed strategy. We'll talk Medicare benefit expansion's fate in the reconciliation package and address highlights from the recent MedPAC meeting. Good afternoon, everyone. How are people today? Well, my daughter's aftercare is outside and they cancel it with precipitation. So I am watching the forecast every day like it's my wedding day. Chance of rain is 30%. So I'm trying to decide how lucky I feel today. Lots of people have tricky schedules, though, so I can't really complain. Yeah, that's a pain, though. I admit, um, we have it pretty easy. My youngest has four parental units, so there's usually someone available. But what I'm struggling with is the Jenga that is the holiday season fast approaching. Who's hosting? Who's traveling? Where's everyone sleeping? Does the air mattress even inflate anymore? Do we know where it is? I did not, though, have the usual Halloween shuffle, as my youngest officially crossed the line into no longer goes trick-or-treating. Don't mind me while I quietly sob in the corner. We came up with a pretty sweet, if I do say so myself, Halloween costume where we got to wear sweatpants. My husband and I were on a conference call. We dressed up on top and wore sweatpants and slippers on the bottom. And I would say about 50% of the people we saw got it. I was skeptical that people needed more Zoom in their in their holiday celebrations, but it sounds like you pulled it off. Uh, we had a great non-costume wearer who knocked late last night. I approached the door and the child uh, said confidently, I've been trying to reach you about your vehicle's extended warranty. <laughs> it was so well played. I thought, that's pretty amazing. I was kind of disappointed I hadn't thought of it myself. And with that, we catapult into a new month. It's November 1st uh, as we're recording this. And uh, so, Breda and Melissa, what's on the docket ahead? Well, health policy conference season is winding down, but not before the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine hold their workshop in December on optimizing care systems for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Yes, this event will be co-hosted by the Institute for Exceptional Care which is led by our very first podcast guest, Mai Pham. And I'm excited to have the opportunity to participate in the event as a panelist alongside researchers, health system leaders, and self-advocates. I'll be sharing insights from interviews that Arrera Health has been conducting for the last five months to learn about innovative financing and payment arrangements for healthcare organizations serving people with IDD. Yeah, APMs are hard enough to come by in traditional Medicare. Making sure that the IDD population has access to providers engaged in value-based care could not be more important. Breda, can you tell us what other topics will be covered in the workshop? Sure. They'll also be discussing issues like coordination with home and community-based services and how to aggregate comprehensive data across different systems. It should be a really great event that leads to more collaboration really good work and great partners. And speaking of great partners, we teamed up this last week with leaders from the Rosalind Carter Institute for Caregiving, the American Red Cross for Military and Veteran Families, Walmart, and more 
for a roundtable discussion of caregiving convened by Sagacity to explore the challenges and opportunities to support caregivers. One of the particularly striking parts of the discussion was on this hesitancy or sometimes delay to self-identify as a caregiver. And respondents and participants in the panel talked about the fact that it, it's not like somebody hands you a, you know, a registration card and says, now it's time, or that there's some bell or ding that goes off. You start with taking people to appointments. Maybe you show up, maybe you go to the appointment with them. Then maybe you're picking up a prescription and, you know, a couple of years go by and it, and it um, accelerates. And so it can be difficult to know when one has crossed over into, you know, part-time or full-time caregiving land. And uh, there can also be some hesitancy to name oneself a caregiver because it's really more than a one-person job. And even though um, in family units, a lot of times one person ends up taking on kind of a disproportionate share of the activity, it can still be a real um, psychological hurdle to say, this is now me, I accept this responsibility, what it means for myself, what it means for my loved one who needs the care. And uh, it was really a, a good and fascinating discussion. And I think it will lead to more collaboration. And caregiving can mean so many different things. Besides support on the medical side, you have the day-to-day of cooking and shopping. And then, like you mentioned, that psychological component, just the pressure of knowing how much is depending on you can be a real stressor. Who is really the caregiver for the caregiver? Exactly. And as a country, we rely so much on the unpaid labor of family caregivers. One thing I hear often from disability activists is that our loved ones who have disabilities or need help with activities of daily living aren't burdens, they're people. And I totally agree, the burden isn't human, it's structural. The structures that we have to support and supplement caregiving are not at all adequate for the size of the need. And you don't often hear members of Congress quantifying the externality of unpaid family caregiving when they consider the government cost of HCBS or similar issues. Absolutely. You know, that brings us, I think, nicely into moving to our next segment, which is the monthly news roundup. I have to say, October felt like there was a lot in the news about Medicare, lots of discussion, not a lot of action yet. True. (laughs) We learned about the CMMI refresh and MedPAC held its October meeting. So we've gleaned insights about direction, but nothing major has actually happened yet. And as far as Medicare expansion, what started out as a plan to include dental, vision, and hearing in Medicare basic benefits through the reconciliation package is currently looking like it will probably just include hearing. Yeah, hearing aids are expensive, but so are dentures. So let's hope something gets out the door soon. Why don't we... Why don't we start this discussion by unpacking the CMMI refresh? What stood out? What questions are left to be answered? I'll take a shot at going first. So the diligence and effort that the agency put into examining the portfolio, looking back over the last decade and taking stock of the lessons learned really stood out to me. I think they named a lot of the challenges and opportunities that have been discussed sort of industry-wide. They didn't shirk the responsibility or make light of any of the challenges. It could be the overlapping models or growing model complexity or the significant financial investment that is required to even participate in an APM. We used to say that you really have to come to an APM from a place of great financial strength as an organization. If you've been having a tough time, you're not going to be able to jump into these deep waters. And so I think there's growing recognition of that. And um, the strategy in terms of its pillars feels, you know, directionally very correct and very appropriately ambitious. 
But I think that in terms of what's left to be answered, a lot of the audiences paying close attention to CMMI, close enough to know that they forecast this in a health affairs article over the summer, and they came back to it not only with a white paper in the last two weeks, but also a webinar, are really tuning in for very specific questions. They're on the hunt uh, for answers to, will any of the current models that I am participating in or wish that I was, will those be ended early? They're looking for answers like, will direct contracting the geographic track? Will that come back? I don't think it is, but I I think it's a fair question given the goal to have all lives aligned to value-based care and payment by 2030. So does that mean we'll see new mega models? Does it mean it's going to be achieved primarily through mandatory models? What's that mix look like? Will global and professional direct contracting finally get a second application round? That's another one that you know, we're cautious for our clients and colleagues. We say, you know, don't go assuming too fast. There's a lot of activity in that model that the agency is trying to get its hands around. So I think we'll continue to, you know, hear these questions and these answers in time. Freda, what did you see? Honestly, my favorite part of the refresh may not sound like the most exciting, but as a former CMMI staffer, I was so excited to hear that they want to simplify the financial methodologies for calculating things like benchmarks. These payment models are so complicated, and they're built on top of existing Medicare payment systems that are already so complicated. Just as one example, the annual physician fee schedule rule is typically hundreds of pages long, and that's just the payment system for office visits. So I'm thrilled that CMMI is thinking about how they can at least make their own payment models less complicated. Okay, so I agree that complexity for complexity's sake is never a good idea. But I don't want to lose the fact that when we created these models and, you know, a number of these models that we're talking about, we were behind the design. We wanted them to be simple. With the Pioneer ACO model, we started out with no risk adjustment and a national trend. And then came the decedent adjustment and the regional adjustment and the duals adjustment and the AWI gypsy adjustment. A lot of complexity was added in at the behest of participants who rightly pointed out that they did not have an equal playing field because they were from a high-cost region or had a disproportionate share of duels, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, we had a saying when we were developing these things. I think you both will remember. We could make it simple or we could make it fair, but it's really hard to be both. Yeah, I do remember that adage. And it's true, it was a constant battle to try to balance accuracy, simplicity, and predictability, because all of those principles pull financial methodologies in different directions. And a slightly different take on that complexity question, MedPAC actually also addressed the topic of simplifying CMMI models in their October public meeting. And they're starting to consider things like whether all models should use the same historical years in their baseline or the same percent blend of historical costs and peer comparison costs. I think it's an interesting idea, in part because it would force CMMI to articulate the need for a given model to differ from a standard design, rather than having all of these siloed teams and contracts designing models independently from each other. Lots of things to consider, and lots of unanswered questions. And I get why the industry is understandably nervous. With one foot in each canoe, fee-for-service, and value-based care, we have heard for years that healthcare is at a tipping point. But come 2022, there may be no total cost of care model to join other than MSSP. 
And I think that this CMMI strategy refresh did a great job of summarizing how we got here and the problems in front of us, but less clear is next steps, which is, as Meg mentioned, what a lot of people were hoping to learn from this paper. I do want to add, though, that recognizing these problems and naming them should not be discounted. Health disparities, lack of real multi-payer engagement, and continued high out-of-pocket costs for beneficiaries, these are not easy problems to solve, but deciding to prioritize them is important. CMMI has put a stake in the ground and called out the next important issues that we should all be focusing on and trying to tackle. So in other news, did you see that United has announced a digital first health plan? I did see that, Melissa. There's such an interesting push and pull right now in healthcare between digital and human solutions. Like teenage moods, the pendulum swings wide and fast. On one hand, there's this digital first plan from United. And on the other, we see some health tech companies ditching or stalling apps and adding more human interaction to their solutions, particularly when addressing aging and isolation. I'm skeptical that people are going to love digital care first when it's a fixed firm program or part of the benefit design, as opposed to an option, which I think people really do generally like. Virtual care isn't frictionless, and right now it can really hit or miss depending on what sort of ailment you're bringing to it. And recently, when I faced the choice of seeking care virtually or going to the urgent care I played this great game of trade-offs, right? If virtual care gets my issue right and is able to address it, then I'm going to save money, I'm going to save time, and I can move on with the rest of my day. If, on the other hand, I go through the rigmarole of registering for the virtual care, putting my information in, having the virtual visit, and my issue can't be addressed, then I'm stuck with, do I go to urgent care later? And is that a whole, you know, healthcare odyssey that I didn't need to take? And urgent care is about a six minute drive away. So, you know, I don't mean to bring my my own personal health issues. I actually don't even remember what the ailment was. I think that's the gift of age, I guess, is I don't even remember what the big conundrum was that I was experiencing. But I'm a pretty educated healthcare consumer, right? Like I know these, any one of us here knows the different um, entities, the different doors to walk through to seek care. I, I was raised by a nurse and a pediatrician. So I feel like I have a leg up in terms of, of making those trade-offs. And I think about a, an average employee population or an average uh, population of covered lives. And boy, it's attractive to look at a really low-cost health plan and, and opt for it. But if it's a low-cost health plan with digital first and digital first hits and misses unpredictably, I think that's going to be an interesting consumer experience. For sure. When I was at Anthem, they also put out a plan similar to this. and. As we were working through what it would look like, you know, some of these problems that you mentioned came up. Virtual solutions have limited capacity to solve problems. So to make something like this work, you really need to integrate them with in-person care. It can't just be, just like you mentioned, sorry, can't solve your problem. P please proceed to urgent care or even the emergency room. That could actually increase costs. There needs to be some bi-directional data exchange between these virtual docs and the in-person care, especially if this patient is attributed to an ACO and there's a physician being held accountable for the cost and quality of their care. 
Okay. And so, well, more to come on digital first health plans. And Breda, I'm afraid we might have saved the least for last. What, if anything more, is there to add on the Medicare benefit expansion? Well, as I mentioned earlier, it looks like the original proposal to add dental, vision, and hearing to Medicare basic benefits may have been whittled down to just include hearing. But the real wild card right now, as far as Medicare provisions go, is whether the reconciliation bill will still include anything to address prescription drug pricing. It seemed dead in the water last week, but now it's looking possible that we might have some version of it. And if we don't, then the ball will be kicked back to CMMI to see if they will develop any new models to address drug pricing. I'll be curious to see what happens, if anything. Outcomes-based contracting in this space has been tried before without much success. If we are focused on Part D as opposed to Part B, it really is up to the manufacturers to participate. So let's hope If it is left to CMMI, there is a strong signal being sent that it is time to get creative and play in this space. Let's move away from policy and into practice. Do we have any health heroes to celebrate today? We do. This story comes to us from the Rosalind Carter Institute for Caregivers and their recent report, Working While Caring. It was a national survey of caregiver stress in the U.S. workforce. And we learned, among other key findings, that one in five full-time workers are caregiving. And the definition used here is providing care on a regular basis for a family member or friend with a serious illness or developmental disorder or disability. Nearly two in 10 employed family caregivers said they had to quit their job, and more than four in 10 said they had to go part-time. The survey explored the biggest challenges faced by caregivers and tested 10 workplace policies that might help support caregivers from flexible schedules and unpaid leave to specialized caregiver services, where it was noted that these are seldom offered, but when offered, over 70% of caregivers use these specialized caregiver services. So our hero today is the team at the Rosalind Carter Institute for Caregiving for creating awareness and space for this important discussion. There it is. That chime means we've come to the end. Our aha moment. Breda, you had an aha moment this week. Bring us home. So first off, fair warning that this is a depressing one, (laughs) but in honor of the fact that Herrera Health Group also has a huge Medicaid focus, uh, this month's aha moment is Medicaid themed. So I had not known much about something called Medicaid estate recovery before I saw a USA Today piece on long-term care Twitter about it a few weeks ago. The 1993 Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act made it mandatory for states to attempt to recover the cost of long-term care services from Medicaid beneficiaries over the age of 55 after their death. The intent was to avoid moral hazard by making sure that people weren't inappropriately shifting or offloading their assets to their family in order to qualify for Medicaid-covered long-term care. But in practice, States recover very little money through this system, and it can have a huge financial impact on the families that they try to recover the money from. The article shared a bunch of examples, one of which was a 76-year-old woman in Baltimore whose mother had co-signed the deed for her house decades ago, but never contributed to the mortgage or anything. And that woman now has a $76,000 claim against her house because they never remembered to take her mom's name off the deed and her mom received long-term care before dying. 
So now you have this low-income elderly woman who might lose her house because her mom needed long-term care. In any case, I, I recommend this article. It was a really great deep dive into this topic. And it's always so good to see journalists shine a light on the huge financial repercussions that our healthcare system can have on people. Listeners are probably familiar with Sarah Cliff, the healthcare reporter who previously worked for Vox and is now at the New York Times. There's this phenomenon that I've heard called the Sarah Cliff effect, or sometimes the Sarah Cliff clock, where she will report on some horrible loophole in healthcare law that bankrupts people. And then within a certain number of years, Congress will have closed that loophole. So my aha moment is really just a moment of appreciation for the journalists who are out there reporting these stories. Did I ever tell you about the time that I handed Sarah Cliff my emergency room bill? No. (laughs) She was moderating a panel that I was speaking on, and it was during that time that she was doing that expose on surprise billing. And so in lieu of sending her an email, because I knew I was going to see her in person, I handed her my emergency room bill, which she thoughtfully commented was the only bill that she had received in paper form. And I think that brings us to a wrap for this November episode of the Medicare Meetup podcast. We'll be back in December. Thank you for joining us for the Medicare Meetup today. If you liked what you heard, be sure to tell us, share the podcast, follow us on Twitter at Arrera Health. That's A-U- R-R-E-R-A Health. If you have questions or thoughts about future guests or to subscribe to our Medicare News Roundup, you can always reach us at medicare at arrarahealth.com. Finally, before we go, have you hugged your Medicare loved one today? No? Do it. Hugs are back. Medicare is destination health coverage. We all end up here if we're lucky. But isolation isn't the destination we want for ourselves or for one another. So reach out, text, or send mail. People love mail. And until next time, this has been Breda, Melissa, and Meg with your Medicare Meetup.